Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next exciting, multifaceted, thrill-packed episode of Honorverse Today. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the third Worlds of Honor anthology, the book Changer of Worlds. Now, the book we're reviewing tonight is a very special one amongst the anthologies. We have three David Weber stories, plus a story from Eric Flint. And all of you old Honorverse fans know, Eric collaborated with David on the Crown of Slaves saga, uh, in the, uh, which is one of the three arcs in the big story. Now, if this lineup makes you think you might be in for a real treat, for those who haven't read it, you're right. I will also add this anthology is extremely important for the second half of the saga. It's it's so important I would consider it essential reading. Two of the stories aren't strictly necessary, but some things make more sense if you've read them. One of the stories will address an oft-heard comment of wishing David had included that story in another book. And one story is absolutely essential to understanding the second series, as well as making sense out of War of Honor. And, you know, I have a feeling I'm going to get some payback for the guys teasing me. Uh, well, this is one of the best Honorverse books, <laughs> uh, because I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't hear, this is one of the best, more than once, from Jim and JP. So. <laughs> In all honesty, though, I will say this. This is the best, really is the best of the anthologies. I don't think it's a better novel. Per, you know, obviously, it's, well, it's not, not but you you understand. I, I, I think Ashes of Victory still tops this one, but this is easily the best of the well, The bar anthologies. keeps getting raised. That's all there uh-huh. is to it. You can't, you can't keep up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, you know, I was so excited to get started. I didn't even introduce you two gentlemen. Uh, that was Jim Arrowwood, and I've got J.P. Harvey here with me. They're, they are my co-hosts. Usual suspects. Yeah. Usual suspects. How are you guys tonight? I'm great. Doing fine here. Yeah, this is the mistake that happens when we chit-chat before we hit the record button. <laughs> if we said funny stuff, that could be like intro <laughs> material, but... We're yeah, not, that, that makes me not, wonder. Well, we think we're funny. I don't know if anyone else would think we're funny. Th- this makes me wonder how many, speaking of that, how many people listened all the way to the end of last uh, last episode? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jim Jim, uh, Jim made the mistake of uh, giving me a little clip, <laughs> and you, you can't give me something like that and not expect me to use it. <laughs> It was an awesome clip. <laughs> oh gosh! So, for for those of you that hit the the apparent end, which you know we kind of wrap up the same way every time, yeah, you know, maybe. Yeah, are are you to... sitting there asking yourself, "Oops, what did I miss?" <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like the it's like the 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 scene that pops up in the middle or the end of the credits. <laughs> yeah. In the in the Marvel movies. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, since this is probably going to be a little bit of a longish episode, and without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and be about it. Sounds good. Jim, bring us into the first uh, story. All right. So this first story we are going to talk about is Miss, or excuse me, Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington by David Weber. Following her graduation from the academy at Saginami Island, Midshipwoman Honor Harrington is assigned to the heavy cruiser War Maiden for further training and hands-on experience in His Majesty's Navy. Some members of the crew aren't happy to see her accompanied by Nimitz, but on the recommendation of Raoul Corvosier, the commanding officer, Thomas Bachfish has requested Honor to join his crew, so this helps Nimitz' acceptance somewhat. War Maiden's mission will be in the Silesian Confederacy, where there is chaos involving privateers. Comments? Surly private. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. She, uh, Let's, yep. She was not, there were a lot of people who were offended by her, uh, tree cat. Um, so I guess this is early in tree cat exposure, exposure or something. Well, fi- figure, figure it's, she's about what, about 20 at this time. She's 40 went, so about 20 years before on Basilisk Station. Ah. Uh. And and as I recall, this is not long after the rules were changed to accommodate. It's the assignment of the tree cat along with the human that the cat is paired with. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like people didn't know what they were. A lot of people had only ever heard about them, but it was still novel that somebody might come on board a ship. And in the Navy itself, they were, mm-hmm. in the Navy in particular, they were still pretty, ra- very rare. In the entire Manticore Navy, there were she as she said there were there was only a handful serving with tree cats, mm-hmm. and we see the references in here uh-huh. to pets, and it's like your pet, yeah. And people probably legitimately thought of it that way, so you you can be critical but understanding that I have heard about this thing that goes on with these tree cats, and then here here is a cadet shows up for the midi cruise with a cat on her shoulder and like, Oh that, yeah. Okay. This now I'm seeing it. All right. Well, listen, you and your pet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though, as you'll know, as you notice that really doesn't survive that, that attitude doesn't seem to survive, uh, exposure to Nimitz for very long. No, of course not. All right. Moving along. It isn't long before honor encounters her training officer, Elvis Santino who shows his dislike for her and begins handing out harsh treatment to Honor and others. Later, at a welcome aboard dinner, the atmosphere is far more welcoming as Honor meets the other senior officers aboard. As the most junior officer present, Honor gives her first toast to the king and is assured that Nimitz is welcome aboard his ship and at his dining table. Yes, uh- if you read one of the things, one of Honor's habits was dining with her officers, and she'd mentioned something about learning it early in her career, you know, in, in her uh, sailing career. Well, yeah, here it is. Yeah. Here it is. It's a good policy. 
you mentioned meeting the other senior officers. It's easy to think of Santino as a senior officer, but he technically is not. He is he is a junior officer. He's the assistant tack officer. Yeah. And um, he's a lieutenant, which is a company grade officer. No, nothing wrong with that, but he, he has a big responsibility and it doesn't seem to, that it's unique on this ship. It's common, but the role that he has is significant. Um, when Honor goes to dinner, she meets the captain, the XO. These other, Well, she had met the XO when she boarded the ship, as I recall. But, mm-hmm. um, now she's sitting down with the officers on the ship, up to and including the captain himself, mm-hmm. who is also, who is a captain, who's a captain by rank and a captain of the ship. And it's a Manticorn tradition that the ATO uh, is... Ba- basically, nursemaids the middies through their uh, maiden voyage, you know, right. of a real de- of the first real deployment, and that is actually going to be very relevant in uh, some of the future novels. Okay, all right. So as time goes on, Honor and other fellow midshipmen continue to face unfair treatment from Santino. When Senior Chief Roland Shelton informs Executive Officer Abner Layson of the treatment being aimed at the junior officers, Layson severely reprimands Santino and removes him as training officer, replacing him with Lieutenant Joseph Saunders. In the days that follow, conditions for the junior officers improve immensely. However, they still have to work with Santino on a professional level. So here's a guy uh-huh. who's really going to start doing some hazing. Yep. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's hazing and then there's abuse. The hazing is part of the midshipman tradition, though there are some obvious, you know, very well-honed uh, limits to it. But boy, Santino, what a loser. Yeah. Well, and if, I'm going to ask a question and then we can just move on. Or if it's worth bringing up now, we will. But we've seen this guy before. Right? Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Not not as a lieutenant anymore, and it's interesting to see the interaction between it later down the road. Obviously, I don't want to be too stupid, elusive, but you know we've already read about the the reacquaintance of Honor and Santino, and it unfolded interestingingly. Mm-hmm. More interesting to me, more interesting than even what goes on in this in this story. Oh yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole Jurovsky arc. Yeah, yeah. And I was that the previous book actually. It was in uh, it was either Echoes or Ashes. I, I thought it was Ashes. Yeah, I because so tip of the hat to Mister Weber. Like these stories, as we get farther away from a book we've read, they this because it's a really good story, singular. Um, sometimes I'm losing track of what was in what book. Yep, you'll do that. You know, the Anna relates her prior experience with Santino in uh, in Ashes, and I think yeah. it was the prior book, the one before that, when the uh, peeps restart their initiative, when McQueen starts that new initiative of hers, mm-hmm. and does some serious butt kicking, that we first encounter Santino. Yeah, ready to move on. Yes, sir. War Maiden arrives in the Saginaw sector of the Silesian Confederacy and encounters Griffin's Pride, a Manticoran raider which was set upon by Silesian privateers. Griffin's Pride crew has been killed 
and the war maiden goes on a hunt for those responsible. During a private conversation, Captain Bockfish explains to his first officer that he requested honor aboard the war maiden because his friend, Corvosier, told him honor was an officer demonstrating the potential to be the most outstanding officer of her generation. Both Bockfish and Corsovier also believe Santino was placed on the War Maiden by the Earl of North Hollow to derail Honor's career as revenge for the beating she gave Pavel Young for his attempted rape at the Academy. I wonder. Yep. I wondered when Pavel Young was going to come up. <laughs> that guy is like the booger that you can't flick it off your finger. Just won't go away. Yeah. He, nope, she. Nope. Yep, and uh, the the young clan had it in for her pretty much the entirety of her career. Yeah, yeah, yep. And um, I it tickled me to see Corvosier here, Captain Corvosier, mm-hmm. at this point doing just what people do, like we see on the negative side with the with young. Um, you know, people talk, colleagues talk, people pass along data on good officers and bad officers, and. So here Corvosier says, watch, watch this lady. She's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, his friend and professional colleague says, I'll bring, I'll bring her on my ship. Of course, Honor doesn't know this at, at this point. All she knows is she was assigned a war maiden. And she's got her first real deployment and. Ah, it starts a little bumpy. <laughs> starts a little bumpy. But when, once Santino's out of the way. Life gets much better for her. Yeah. And once he's off the ship, it gets even better than that. <laughs> okay. All right. The scene changes to a conversation between a mysterious character and Commodore Anders Dunecki, a member of the Council for an Independent Prism and commander of the Prism Space Navy vessel, Annika. He explains how his ship will continue its operations against the Silesian Authority after hearing of the destruction of another prism ship by the Silesian Confederate Navy. Who is the mysterious character? Do we know? Do we find out? I thought the name was given at some point. Uh, it's simply one of his. It's simply one of his uh, colleagues. Okay. I don't remember exactly if it was a subordinate officer or a, a superior officer, but we do see we we do see well several of all of several of all of those uh-huh. in the story, and we see Silesia pretty much as Silesia. It, it's a hotbed of uh, villainy and uh, corruption, <laughs> scum and villainy, <laughs> scum and villainy. Every neighborhood's yep. got that that Confederate. Yep. Or Confederacy or whatever, right? <laughs> oh, it's those people. <laughs> yes. The Silesians. Yep. Sometimes referred to as sillies in the Silly. Yeah, you've mentioned mm-hmm. that before. Okay, later, the prism ship Javelin arrives in the Melkor system where War Maiden is disguised as a freighter as bait to privateers. As the Javelin makes to attack War Maiden, Santino who has the bridge watch, orders a maneuver that reveals the War Maiden as a warship. Captain Bockfish declares Santino completely incompetent and puts him in command of a small crew to return Griffin's pride to the Star Kingdom. With Santino out of the way, Honor is promoted to acting assistant tactical officer in his place. I was not sorry to see the guy go. 
Yeah. Nope. The big question that this leaves me is how in the heck did he ever make the rank of admiral? <laughs> well, even with the patronage system. Well, yeah. and he knows Whitehaven, so I think that nope. yeah, that's North Hollow. unfortunately the answer. North Hollow, right? Nor, North Whitehaven. North Hollow. Sorry about that. Um, you know, that's I think that's that's all I know. Haven't read ahead. I think that's what we're expected to take from this is that in some cases that sponsorship that um well we've already seen enough of high ridge and north hollow and their cronies to get a feeling for just how yeah mm -hmm. crap they run things and to a degree that's who's driving a lot of things as it is now mm -hmm. yeah and and frankly so here's a guy that nobody really needs to care about uh he, he's an ensign. There's a bazillion of them. They're expected to know not much, make mistakes, all that. Now he's a lieutenant. He's got some responsibility. This is when he's going to start screwing up. But he's still a junior officer. And in the grand scheme, while it matters if a captain, a ship's captain and a captain by rank notices you in a bad way, he's, you know, he's just, he's probably one of any number across the entire Navy of, of, goofballs frankly that now is on on the watch list right this guy this guy may not be the kind of person we want as a career officer but they're also expected to continue to learn the problem is when guys like that endure suddenly uh you know he's a lieutenant commander he's a commander and then you look all of a sudden you hit a point where you're like oh this guy has served the better part of a career and no one ever disposed of him for all mm -hmm. the right reasons right <laughs> it it happens yeah yep uh and, and I suspect that's how that guy, especially when you throw the patronage on top of it, I said sponsorship earlier, um, it happens. Yeah. That time served and desperate need for any officer of rank once right. the war starts. So, yeah, it's like when you screw up by the numbers that badly and bl completely blow your CO's off plan, it's like, whoa. <laughs> All right, Duneki, here's about... The Javelin incident and takes Annika out to challenge and defeat War Maiden at Melkor. When they arrive, the War Maiden is disguised as the Hauptman Lines freighter Sylvan Grove. What Captain Bockfish doesn't know is that Duneki knows War Maiden is disguised. Bockfish lets Annika approach, and when they are at very close range, both ships open fire with lasers and grazers, causing both vessels serious damage and loss of life. On board the War Maiden, most of the bridge officers are injured or killed. Bockfish is severely injured, leaving Honor the most senior officer on the bridge. Both ships roll to present their opposite broadsides to continue the fight, but a brilliant maneuver ordered by Honor prevents Annika from causing further damage and is destroyed. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, before her career even gets completely launched honor saves the day well it's not not just that the but both ships knew almost what the other was and both ships as a result ended up that almost meant they both severely underestimated the other yeah yeah so neither thought the other would fire yep mm -hmm. i'm gonna surprise you and the surprise was they both surprised each other yeah yeah almost simultaneously yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sylvan, uh, not Sylvan, Annika had no idea they were, they, she, they thought they were facing a half-assed Salacian, uh ship. 
fairly small ship. They had no idea that they were in front of a uh, Manticoran cruiser. A, a warship, yep. Yeah. Now, see, I beg to differ because it was it was pretty clear that Bachfish, not Bachfish, but uh, Duneki went in knowing what the Anakin was He knew was it was doing. a warship, but he didn't know it was Manticoran. Oh, I see. And I, as I recall, or maybe it was my impression, he didn't believe they would be ready to get hostile that quick when, in fact, they were postured to for the worst, mm-hmm. yeah. which is how you get both firing on each other, essentially, at the same time. So they both misread yep. each other. Warren yeah. Maiden thought this was just a pirate vessel. Mm-hmm. Well, Bachfish addresses a that. ship that... Hmm? Yeah, Bachfish addresses that. But anyway, let's finish this. Let's finish this rather uh-huh. lengthy yeah. for a short story. But gosh, there was an awful lot crammed in here. Later, Honor is called to the captain's day cabin. She is informed by the captain and exec that she and the other midshipmen have earned an endorsement for early completion of their tour on the War Maiden. Nasios Marika, a fellow midshipman and Honor's friend, receives a posthumous promotion to Lieutenant Junior Grade. Captain Bockfish anticipates he will be facing a board of inquiry as a result of being overconfident in his ship's superiority. Honor is promoted to the rank of Ensign for ex- her exemplary performance during the battle and appointed Assistant Tactical Officer for the remainder of the voyage. Well, there it is. There, yeah. there are a lot of it is what a what a for a short story it's a fat story it is it's almost more of a novella couple thoughts though on in this and la- this last wrap-up um yeah of course he's gonna he, he, his ship got the heck shot out of it uh so of course he's going to be you know that's pretty much standard procedure as far as facing a board of inquiry but uh keep in mind also that uh there's he's also discussed earlier that there's probably going to be consequences for his uh, supporting honor. Yes, yeah, that was a cool discussion between him and uh, the XO, right? Yep. So between yep. that and this uh, and this final battle, he may have just had his career flushed. Mm. And I hope not, because I want to see more of this guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a good officer, and uh, but you know, mistakes in the military seem to be not tolerated well especially big mistakes, Uh, certain mistakes. It's kind of like a system that I learned about when I first started teaching is called the attaboy system. You get a, Mm -hmm. you know, you get a, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you you get an attaboy for everything you do well. And when you get a hundred attaboys all piled up, you get a pat on the back. But if you get an aw shit, (laughs) Just one. Oh, just one. It wipes out all the attaboys and you have to start all over again. And that's kind of the way, yep. <laughs> the way it seems. All right. Hey, JP, I'm going to toss it over to you for some background information and then on to themes. Yeah, not not a lot about this. Um, just real quick for the overall book, because we do call it out. This was published in February of 2001. As we've mentioned before, we're reading these in the publication order. So that's why we're here. On this one, uh, in between two novels, and like uh, like you heard, it contains four short stories. Uh, this first one takes us all the way back to Honor as a midshipman near the end of her academy time, and these and this comes out in the story, so it's not really uh, anything special. But 
these are essentially these midshipmen, uh, midshipwoman cruises are are a form of a graduation exercise. So unless a I was going to say cadet, unless a midshipman really messes something up, this is one a chance to break them out of the academic world and into the operational navy. The other is just a you know, in some ways, it's a congratulatory chance to go do some things without having any real chance to mess up badly. Um, get the cadet excited. I'm going to keep saying cadet, but you all know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, get gets them excited about the navy that they've spent the last four years training to be in, and it's like now it's finally about to be real. So it's kind of a cool thing. Um, but we are back a ways, as we've talked about. This is this is a very young honor really at the cusp of launching her career. Um, with that, I'll roll into the themes for uh, the one, story. One, now, background, is... one background question, JP. What does that title, what does the title of this one remind you of? The t- of uh, Horatio Hornblower. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was the very a book, first book. By essentially the same name. Yep. Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. Yeah. Mm. Yep. I keep thinking I need to, I want to pull those back out and read them, but there's, there's no time because I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is good stuff. Um, yeah, so ties back to Horatio Hornblower again. Okay, themes in this story, officership and leadership. We've kind of been talking about that. Good and bad, I think um, Bachfish and his XO demonstrate the good, and, and our friend L- Lieutenant Santino is a good example of kind of bad leadership. By the way, I think this informs the the kind of classic debate about leadership, at least within the military and in our commissioning programs about whether or not leadership is natural or if it's taught. Are, peop- are some people born to be leaders? Uh, could be a yes or a no. Are, some, are, are all leaders actually taught to be good leaders? It could be a yes or a no. It could be both. But that debate is a fun one to have. And that's sort of looked at here mm-hmm. uh, a little bit without being deliberately being a theme, but I'm going to throw that out as, as a highlight to the officership and leadership theme. Command mm-hmm. is a theme here. We see that in Bachfish and how he, how he commands and shows us an honor kind of gives opinion about this, what she had seen learned. And then what she sees in him, that this isn't command is an art and Bachfish starts showing her how that art, the practice of that art, it works. And then the role of midshipman is touched on here, um, but it's neat because it it sort of reflects on the history of midshipmen in the Navy, uh, where Especially they come the from. British and, Navy. Yes. Um, you know, a midshipman didn't, weren't necessarily people coming out of an academy, but they were the right, and I'm, I'm going to do, I'm doing air quotes. They <laughs> were the right kids. They were the right youngsters who were being prepared on the ship to eventually prove themselves and gain a, and, and gain a commission. So, and they were kids uh, historically in the real world who did mm-hmm. this. Yeah. In this case, these are, these are adults. These are young adults that are coming out of the Academy, but it was not uncommon to have a midshipman on board a warship and they, they are treated as officers. So we see that here in this work of fiction that reflects reality. Yep. So mm-hmm. one thing over to, him. What's that? One, one thing that I, w- I would say, the debate about leadership that you talk about, um, civilian way of putting it is the where the same debate occurs is the difference between leadership and management. 
being a leader and being a good manager. Very different skill sets. They're, yes, different things. There are parts that overlap, but you can have great managers that cannot lead. Mm-hmm. You can have great can officers. Have, by the way, versus yes, great you can have leaders. great officers who are essentially leaders um, who cannot command. Mm-hmm. So there's even another distinction. Yep. You can have a fantastic officer who would never be trusted to command or proves that they should never command again after a first time. Um, the command is a different beast, but it is absolutely tied to leadership. And we'll, we'll see, we'll see that explored a little bit further along too. Awesome. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Weber has gone there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so impressions, discussions, quotes. Let's start that out with Jim. Okay. I'm going to preface my remarks by saying the way I do this is I read the story and then I run like hell to the computer and start typing and getting everything down before I start the next story. So <laughs> bear with me. You'll, you'll understand why I, I gave that. All right. This was one of the best of the short stories so far, in my opinion. I enjoyed the look at Young Honor on her first mission and how she saved the day. I like the fact that she chose to save her ship instead of going to the aid of her fellow officers. Had she chosen otherwise, there would have been a hell of a lot more casualties than there were. I was angry with the treatment of the midshipman under the original training officer, Santino. This also showed uh, the long reach of North Hollow. It makes me wonder uh, if that chapter of Honor's life is really over. I like the War Maidens captain and officers otherwise. It was a tough situation for the new officers, and we see Honor's baptism by fire. And I did take a couple of quotes from here. Uh, Bozen Flanagan and Senior Chief Shelton exchange observations about the new midshipmen. Flanagan disparages the new officers, calling them hapless. Shelton counters with, Oh, they're not as bad as all that, Shelton said. They've got a few rough edges. Hell, let's be honest, they've got a lot of rough edges, but we're getting them filed down. By the time we hit Silesia, they'll be ready, and some of them aren't half bad already. You think so? Flanagan's eyebrows rose in ever so slightly at Shelton's tone, and the senior chief nodded. And just who, if you don't mind me asking, brought that particular bit of praise to the surface? Young Harrington, as a matter of fact, Shelton said, I came across her in Axial 1 this afternoon tearing a strip off a couple of work parties who'd managed to run smack into each other. Tronics crates all over the deck, countergrav pallet cocked up on its side, push-pull all twisted against the bulkhead, and half a dozen missile drives ready to slip right out of their collars, not to mention a couple of ratings ready to start thumping hell out of each other over whose fault it was. And there she stood, reading them the riot act. Got their sorry asses sorted out in record time, too. Flanagan found it a little difficult to hide his surprise at the obvious approval in Shelton's voice. I wouldn't have thought she had decibels for reading riot acts, he observed, watching his friend's expression carefully. Sweet voice thing like that. I think she'd sound sort of silly shouting at a hairy bunch of spacers, Nah, Shelton said with a grin. That's the beauty of it. Never cussed or even raised her voice once. Didn't have to. She may only be a snotty, 
But that young lady could burn the finish off a battle steel bulkhead with her tone alone. Haven't seen anything like it in years. Okay, this. Well, Jim, you stole one of my quotes. Oh, good. <laughs> I was, I, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> but I am not going to give this one up because this one had. I'll let you have it. Had me laughing. Okay. Honor fixes herself a little snack. Nimitz perked up on her shoulder as she spotted the cheese-stuffed celery sticks and passed one up to him, then snuck an olive out of the slightly limp-looking bowl of tossed salad and popped it into her mouth to stave off starvation while she constructed a proper sandwich for more serious attention. Mayonnaise, cold cuts mustard, Swiss cheese, sliced onion, another layer of cold cuts, dill pickle slices, another slice of Swiss cheese, some lettuce from the salad bowl, and a tomato ring, and she was done. She added a satisfying, but not overly greedy, heap of potato chips to her plate to keep it company, and poured herself a large glass of milk, and snagged two cupcakes to keep it company, then gathered up a few extra celery sticks for Nimitz, and found a seat at one of the unoccupied wardroom tables. How, in God's name... Did you put that thing together without counter grab? <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was a needed lighthearted moment. At, yes. After some of the stupid stuff that was going on with Santino mm-hmm. you know, earlier. Well, I'll tell you what, if she was my yeoman, I'd, uh, I'd be very happy to have her bring me lunch every day. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wouldn't fit in the command chair anymore. <laughs> yeah. Jay have to make a new rating in the Navy called Sandwich Stacker yep. or something. So, Raul, I'm sorry I stole your quote, but. Oh, no. It's entirely yours because my other quote is the uh, sister quote to that one. Oh, okay. So. Maybe I'll steal it. <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead, JP. And yeah, that second well, quote. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say that second quote was a fantastic one. It was one of my runner ups. Counter grab. Okay, I like the story also. I like that we get some color into Honor's young life. Um, it's clear the influence of a first commander, not just a good commander. In this case, it was the ship's captain, can be significant. So much in here carries uh, into how Honor ultimately leads and commands through her career. And I think, Jim, you kind of mentioned that earlier. We, we see that What's here we see reflected later in her conduct. Uh, Keep in mind, academies are commissioning programs first and academic institutions second. I I can't remember if I've ever made that point in earlier uh, episodes or not. So, yeah, you go there. Yeah, you get a degree. Kids and and adults, officers will talk about it like it's a college, like it's an academic school first. But in fact, that is not the case. It's a commissioning program that grants a degree. Um, they're, they're leadership laboratories and the real world in air quotes is out in the fleet in this case. So this gives us uh, a glimpse into that midshipman's cruise, what that's all about in spite of Santino. So a uh, few quotes here. First, this is honor reflecting on Captain Bockfish. This Captain Bockfish was a very different proposition from the formal, almost cold CO who had presided over the meal itself. She still didn't understand why he seemed so distant then, 
but she readily appreciated the skill with which he drew each of his officers in turn into the discussion now. And she admitted how effortlessly he had made a mere midshipwoman feel at ease in their company. His question might be humorously phrased, and he might display an almost dangerously pointed wit, yet he had all of them involved in discussing serious issues, and he managed it as a leader, not merely as a captain. She remembered one more time what Captain Corvosier had said about the need for a captain to know his officers, and realized that Bockfish had just given her an object lesson in how a captain might go about that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, second, the first quote, second quote, this is Commander Layson, the XO pretty much shredding <laughs> Lieutenant Santino, which was a happy moment for me and not so much for the lieutenant. The senior chief petty officer in question, Layson said quietly, has been in this King's Navy for seven years longer than you've been alive, Lieutenant Santino. In that time, he's had the opportunity to see more midshipmen and midshipwomen then you've seen dinners. I'm not prepared to entertain any suggestion that he is too inexperienced to form a reasonable and reliable opinion of Miss Harrington's character. Do I make myself clear? Yes, sir. Santino was perspiring freely now, and Layson stood behind his desk. As a matter of fact, Mr. Santino, I asked Senior Chief Shelton to share the insight of his many years of experience with me some days ago when I began to hear a few disturbing reports about our officer candidates. As such, he was acting under my direct instructions when he gave me his version of your discussion with Ms. Harrington. Frankly, I'm happy he was there, because this episode simply confirms something I've already come to suspect, which is, Mr. Santino, that you are clearly too stupid to pour piss out of a boot without printed instructions. And I wish he had added on the heel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> great that one. was one i had i've heard some insults that was that was the first time for that one. Oh, really oh, that's a good one. Oh, geez yeah, yeah he's so dumb he couldn't pour piss out of a boot with the printed instructions on the heel <laughs> <laughs> all right go on all right another one i i have i have two more and uh they're as they're shorter than the the first ones there so this is Honor talking with Makira, um, another midi on the on the cruise there. Actually, Makira said in an unusually serious tone, I think you might have a point there. I really do have a tendency to look for problems first. Maybe that's because I've discovered that that way any of my surprises are pleasant ones. Remember Captain Corvosier always said that no plan survives contact with the enemy anyway? The way I see it, that makes a pessimist the ideal commander in a lot of ways. Maybe, as long as your pessimism doesn't prevent you from having enough confidence to take the initiative away from the bad guys and hang on to it for yourself, Honor countered. So Makira is quoting Corvosier, who is actually paraphrasing Clausewitz. This theme, Clausewitz shows up in these books a lot, you know, and is one of the Mm kind of, I'll call the big three military theorists out there. Um, it, it's cool that without that being pointed at bluntly here, she's she's saying, well, Captain Corvosier taught us this. And what she's actually saying is we as a military community learn this from Clausewitz. You know, what's funny here is uh, Makira's comment about uh, <laughs> pessimism. 
mm-hmm. is sort of a paraphrase of one of my little quotes that I came up with and have been using since I was in high school. Actually, less of a pessimist, but reminds me of that quote. A cynic is the highest form of optimist. (laughs) I like it. It it just put that comment just puts me, it's saying basically the same thing. And here's the final one. Honor thinking about what she's seeing and learning here on the ship. The fact that their seniors still had not had a single clear look at the contact, this is before the big skirmish that happens, made her nervous, but she took herself firmly to task. This, too, she thought, was a part of the art of command. For all of his calm, the captain actually knew no more about the contact than honor herself, but it was his job to exude the sort of confidence his people needed from him at that moment. Captain Corvosier had stressed more than once that even if she was wrong, or perhaps especially if she was wrong, a commanding officer must never forget her command face. Nothing could destroy a crew's cohesion faster than panic, and nothing produced panic better than the suggestion that the CO had lost her own confidence. Love yep, that quote. That is mm-hmm. a great one. <laughs> and I'm going to get off the stage and turn it over to you, Raul. Okay, so... You know, we, we've had some references in the past about Honor's uh, MIDI cruise. We had references about her early experiences in Salacia, both of these a few times. Uh, most recently, of course, like we said earlier, the experience with Santino when she was talking uh, to Jaralski. We finally get that story here. And Conrad, we've... The, the guys you, you've been waiting for, that's one, one of our, our fans who's been writing to us. He has just been waiting to hear your guys' thoughts on Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington. So, Conrad here, the, the, this one's for you. <laughs> now, it, it's really fascinating for me to see how her career and style is shaped in, the early, in, in this early cruise. Even her trademark, Let's Be About It. Now, admittedly... Bachfish, she only used it once, at, but the context of it, going over to the uh, ship that had been atta- had been attacked by the pirates, uh, that context obviously made a huge impression on her. And, you know, I have to say, I really like this captain. I really like Bachfish. And, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we got to see him again at some point in the future? I hope we do. Mm-hmm. Another one of Honor's habits that seems to get set early on here is gee even on her very first mission she's got this habit of getting ships shot to hell <laughs> right out at the very outset now yeah and of course her flair for unconventional tactics you know at, at times of desperation but boy even here she's she, she can't do it the easy way now now hope i was thinking maybe she might pull out the picard maneuver <laughs> no 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 just kidding. This isn't the Star Trek podcast. Though. Don't steal my line. <laughs> <laughs> um, one quote that I had, like I said earlier, Jim, this is this this is sort of the uh, bookmark, the the front bookmark to the quote you used. Senior Chief Sheldon is making his initial thoughts when she first reports on to duty. Her soprano is surprisingly soft and sweet for someone of her height. Sheldon noticed as the Marine took the chip and slotted it into his memo board, although her tone was neither hesitant or shy. Still, 
He had to wonder if someone who sounded as young as she looked could ever be able to generate a proper snap command. <laughs> yeah, j- just the irony of that be- that statement being applied to honor to begin with. Yeah. And then your quote, of course, is the bookend of that when we, when we actually see it. <laughs> so, you know, overall, absolutely wonderful story. It gives a lot of background and insight into honor's past and what influenced her. And I'm going to let you know now, it does provide information that's going to be quite relevant in future novels. Oh, that's the one you that I stole from you. I thought maybe the sandwich one was the one I had stolen no, from No, you. no, 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 <laughs> no. The Okay, now I see. <laughs> yeah, especially especially the the bit about she may be only a snotty, but that young lady could burn the finish off of a battle steel bulkhead. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. That was hilarious. It was, Yeah. It was great. The best part of that being the bookend of this too is that the other senior NCO, of course, says, "Well, I can't. I can't believe she she could yell loud enough or whatever." And he's like, <laughs> she, "She didn't, didn't have raise to. her voice." <laughs> yep. So, gentlemen, let's wrap this uh, story up with some ratings. And as everyone knows by now, we do this as a thumb up, a thumb down, or a neutral. Mm-hmm. Jim, you get the first one. I'm giving this a big time thumbs up. That does not surprise me. And JP. <laughs> I'm going to follow it with a thumbs up. And yeah, if you haven't figured it out, Conrad, three big thumbs up. Actually, maybe two because Jim got a double here. <laughs> so yeah, all thumbs and up. I'll, I want to throw this out there for Conrad. If he was, it was this story or this book? Well, this story. He? Yeah. So I think we could have done a whole episode easily just on this story oh we just about have you're gonna hear that you're gonna hear that uh comment again it's a good point jim we we have just about done a whole episode (laughs) on this story there is so much packed into this little story exactly it's incredible yeah yeah if necessary we can always split this into two just for you know fan convenience no 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 let's go ahead and violate the bylaws Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and move on to changer of worlds Fortunately, I think this is a little shorter. Yeah. Changer of Worlds by David Weber. A scout for the Brightwater clan of tree cats senses a mated pair of cats coming his way. It isn't long before he meets Laughs Brightly, known as Nimitz, and Golden Voice, known as Samantha. Upon arrival at the Brightwater meeting place, the chief memory singer senses they have a strong bond. There are some who disapprove of the relationship because Samantha was supposed to be a memory singer, but instead went out into the human world and bonded with one. Samantha abides by her decision. The clan also learns about her suffering when she lost the human she was bonded to and how Laughs Brightly saved her life and helped her through her grief. So we've uh, we've already learned about all that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, Samantha has become the king's partner. Is that right? No. The- no, no, no. Samantha Samantha was the uh, chief engineer. Okay. Uh, a few books back. I think when she was this doing was- her Slacy in uh, Cruise on the Q-Ship. Samantha? Yeah. This this was the cat, yep. wasn't it, that... that uh, yep. Nah. The, that her chief engineer, he got killed okay. in, in the battle. Yes. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And... and then- uh, that's how Nimitz was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. The only reason she didn't suicide was because of the bond to Nimitz. Okay. All right. Uh, next, the pair explain their purpose for their visit. It is to convince the rest of the tree cats to end their great deception and show the humans their true intelligence. The clan elders are heavily opposed to this because of the dangerous nature of the ongoing First Havenite Manticoran War. After much back and forth, it is decided to allow Laughs Brightly and Samantha to establish a tree cat colony in the Harrington Steading on the planet Grayson. So now we know how the uh, tree cats wound up in Grayson. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nimitz and Samantha return to honor. She is unaware of the momentous decision in which the cats will change the world. Well, there it is. Yep. All right. Kind of covered some of the background there already, and I have one assumption in what I'll say that I think is correct, but you guys can fix it. If it's mm-hmm. not, let me know. Um, so as as mentioned, this occurs when Samantha and Nimitz visit Brightwater Clan. Samantha is unique in that she is essentially a non-serving memory singer. The discussion she has with the Brightwater clan's memory singer, I thought was interesting. Well, you're a, you're a memory singer. Well, no, I'm not. Well, you're, but you're able to. Yeah. But you know, it was a interesting <laughs> back and forth. Um, well, you're not one, but you're still one and you should have known better. There, that, that whole dialogue, frankly, made the cats for me more, um, believable, I guess, more human. I don't know what the right descriptor is, but they, you know, they're not this perfectly homogenous. Yep. You know, everyone's in agreement with everyone. Here, here we see that, no, that's not always the case. So she, she's a non-serving memory singer. She mates outside of her clan. And that was discussed a little bit with the protocol for who talks first and all that. It was, it, it was interesting. It was not dragged out, but that there was actually a protocol for the the rarer instance where a cat from one clan will mate with another and kind of what Nimitz's role in the, all the dialogue was as it unfolded. But that's, so that makes, that makes Samantha unique. Mm-hmm. And then um, she paired with a human who died, which we've mentioned, but she didn't die. She didn't suicide. And then as this is the part I'm not sure of that she subsequent, not only does Nimitz, you know, pull her uh, back from the ledge, but doesn't she pair with another human? Uh, she hasn't. Uh, she hasn't here. Okay, I I couldn't remember that for sure because, and I think that might be Jim. Why you were wrestling with which cat this was in an earlier story? Because there was the one I know it was in the short story um, in one of the other anthologies where the sick cat makes its way to uh, the Scottish guy. I'm not. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Who also yep. has a cat, and everybody's pretty sure that cat's going to die. But that cat ends up, as I recall, adopting. Okay. Or pairing with another human but so uh interesting dynamic going on here uh themes for this really uh two and maybe a third tree cat the tree cat consideration that it's time to give fuller disclosure about themselves to the humans was pretty cool you know they're they uniformly seem to agree that you they needed to hide their cleverness was the phrase they used Mm -hmm. and the argument is maybe it's time to reveal how clever we are that was a neat discussion the most important one to me was the proposition to colonize and not just Grayson. What's implied is other worlds, plural. And I'll come back to that okay. later. And I kind of commented, if you want to call it a third theme, would be that the, the tree cat cultural homogeneity is 
is not perfect. And we see that for the, I think for the first time here where there's limits to how, how agreeable everybody is, especially on big issues like, you know, revealing how clever they are and colonization. But that, that was it. Yeah. There, there's nothing to add. I think you've really, you've really got that nailed there. I'm going to mention co- what intrigues me about colonization when we get into discussing. Well, actually, if you, if you'd like, we, go ahead and go first. Okay. For the impressions um, and discussion, and then we'll let Jim follow up. Sure. So this story overall for me, I, it was fine. I liked it. Um, I, I'm not saying that I think it's a bad story, but of the four in this book, oddly, it was probably my least favorite. Maybe that's not odd. I don't know. Um, and and again, that's not saying that I, did, I didn't like it or that it was a bad story. It just uh, was number four of four in a book full of really awesome stories. Um, what really piqued my interest in this, though, was the proposal within that tree cat community to establish colonies. Um, the unspoken risk that I see here, and it wasn't, I don't think it was blunt, but I think it was hinted at, that the risk to establishing those colonies is that the exposure to more of humanity and not just those that the cats have known, which are essentially all from the Star Kingdom. I mean, that uh, we, we mentioned Grayson. But um, the, the the human the slice of humanity that the cats have known has been pretty singular in terms of what it is, and we know that where there have been bad actors inside of that human population, they seem to be on the same side as the humans they're paired with individually and culturally, and that that person is a bad person and needs to be dealt with. And we've watched cats go into action to help humans solve those problems. What happens if the if these cats? through their colonies start bonding with not star kingdom folks <laughs> or or their allies what happens when the cats we find that a cat is now bonded with a havenite or a solarian or you know you can keep going with that be patient they're discussing opening a door you know it's a medusa's box it's pandora's yeah. box and not medusa right once you open that thing up you are not going to be able to put it back so They've got they've got the humans they bonded with. They're talking about letting humans, at least some humans, know that they are craftier and smarter than we realize. They also know that humans go to war with each other. So in my mind, it's the big, and I think maybe unanticipated, because the cats have led a life sheltered, in, and I mean that in a good way, right? They've led a sheltered existence, and now they're dealing with another species. So the the big question is what happens if yeah. uh, this could tear could tear huge rifts or rips into the community of cats as a species, or, or maybe they're there and we just haven't seen them yet. Just not related to colonization. It, it but, would be interesting to yeah. see an alternate universe story where Oscar Saint Just is bonded with a tree cat. Right. <laughs> and what that cat thinks of the star kingdom of, but yeah, it'll just, yeah, he, obviously that, that, that won't happen, but. <laughs> well, keep in mind, keep in mind that we've already had tree cats bond with uh, Grayson's. Yes. Yeah. I'm not discounting that. So. Yeah. And I'm using broad, the star kingdom broadly, right? Them and their allies, like, like-minded Half patience, my friend. So Raul is not going to let you close the door on that one. Nope. <laughs> I don't want the door closed. I'm letting you guys know I'm anxious to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, you know, tree cats do understand war that they have had the, that they've yes. got their own experiences in that, in that regard. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's our, that came out in, uh, one of the earlier two, one of the early were, stories of tree cat. Yeah. There were references to some conflict that had happened. Mm-hmm. So Jim. So Jim. Okay. This is a very short story that one can read in less than an hour, and it rapidly comes to the point. I found the story mildly interesting, but not earth-shattering. However, not long ago, I asked if Nimitz had a tree cat name, and now I have my answer. Yep. That's it. No quotes. If you remember, though, I, I used the wrong tree cat name in A Beautiful Friendship, uh-huh. and I accidentally used the Laugh Sprightly. Oh, no. Instead of uh, climbs quickly. I'm reverse upset over that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, did you notice uh, Honor's uh, tree cat name? You know, they they give humans, humans get tree cat names too. Honor's name was Dances. I missed it. Dances with Clouds Ah. or Dances in Clouds. Dances in Clouds or on Clouds, one or the other. Yeah, I did notice that, but Mm -hmm. I didn't remember it. Yep. Very, they tend to be very practical in their naming. And as we've already noted, uh, tree cat names can change as the person changes. Uh-huh. And yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, swing into my thoughts here. Like yeah. you said, it's a rather short story. It's a delightful peek into modern tree cat society. If you're a big tree cat fan, this will be one of your favorite uh, stories, favorite shorts. If you're not a particularly, you know, big gung-ho tree cat fan, then it's just going to be another very good story from a very good anthology. It's a great background piece like the others. I will say this, it is very relevant to the future. We've already seen some hints about tree cats dropping their deception just when they learn to sign and things are just going to progress from there. So we're seeing what we're seeing is the eventual outcome of the cat's uh, decision. And in fact, as you see that develop, this is a story, even if it's not one of your favorites, it's one you're going to think back fondly about. I did have a quote, and so much of the story really gets summarized in, in this one quote. Indeed, laughed, laughs brightly put in, his pride in his mate burning bright in his mind glow as he tucked an arm about her. But whatever the decision, Golden Voice and I and our kittens will leave with dances on clouds. There was not much as a shock or surprise at hearing such an announcement from a scout as there might have been in other clans. This was Brightwater Clan, after all, and its elders knew laughs brightly of old. We understand that laughs brightly. Wind of Memory told him now her mind voice and mind glow rich with a resigned laughter but at least allow us the illusion that the vote of all the rest of the people in the world matters just a bit. Oh, of course, senior singer, laughs brightly assured her with a bleak of amusement. It would never do for us to be impolite after all, now would it? <laughs> yeah. I think that pretty much summarizes the story. So in the future, are we going to have a tree cat named Changer of Worlds? I don't. Ooh. Ooh. I don't believe I've seen that yet. <laughs> now we have to keep an eye out for yep. it. Yep. Just in case. So. Just in case it's, it's already there. And if not, maybe it'll be in something else that David writes. Yep. So before we move on, thumbs, gentlemen, thumbs. Uh, thumbs up. Or sticks of celery. 
Sticks us out. No. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> so a thumbs up from you, Jim? Yep. Yep. Except. Thumbs up from me also. And ditto for me. So that so yeah, I, I was sure this would be would be a three thumbs up. It's a good story. Yeah, it is. It has absolutely an excellent story. It's just so overshadowed by everything else. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, this is three Weber stories and an Eric Flint story. Yeah. Enough said. Yeah. You, you're not going to get bad work out of that. Right. No way. And speaking of Eric Flint, are we ready to move on to uh, From the Highlands, sir? Yes. So? Take it away. I will. Former Havenite Admiral Amos Parnell is set to arrive on Earth to testify about the illegal activities of the Committee of Public Safety and the Office of State Security. He will testify about the treatment of prisoners on Hades before the Committee of Human Rights. Okay, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just move along. That just kind of places us within the time frame of where everything's happening, right. and it's kind of important in that respect. Yes. On the day before, Helen Zilwicky, daughter of Anton Zilwicky, is abducted by a faction known as Scrags with the help of Manpower Incorporated and Mesa. Their purpose was to discredit Parnell's testimony and place blame on Manticorn Intelligence, of which Anton is a member of. So we have, and, a, have a little bit of ahead. intrigue going on here and there. And this is not the first time we've seen uh, Anton and Helen Zilwicky, don't forget. No, no, it isn't. Yeah. Well, we focus was on his wife. The, the focus was on his wife, and not, now the now the husband and daughter are back. And I kind of gave a hint of that. Yeah. The, the, this is yeah. where that first happens. And it was, uh, you know, it was really sad the way that kind of worked out for her. She had no idea why she was kidnapped, why she was being held. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not not so much bad treatment as it was neglect. So, and and Anton did not know either. No. Nope. He he had some theories and he had some strong opinions about who didn't do it. Yeah. Which were contrary to what I think the common mm-hmm. perception would be about who who had kidnapped her. But he he had a he had an informed opinion of his own about who. Who didn't yeah. do it? And then it, at first they, he really didn't know who did it. He just knew who didn't do yeah. it. And part of, a big part of the story is working the answers to those questions out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The entire incident comes to a head when Manpower's headquarters are attacked and secret documents are captured and are to be taken to Manticore for further examination. The documents implicate certain members of Manticore and Peerage involved with Manpower's slave activities. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Say what? Yeah. Now, who would believe that? I wonder who might be the Manticorans involved in that. We're going to find that out, I'm sure, right? We have to. And then they can't set this up this way. And then we're going to get, they were going to, I say they, David Weber, no, not David Weber, Eric Flint can't set this up this way unless there's a reason we're learning. No, I'm laughing for another uh, reason, conflating Eric and David. They're, uh, he's like a spirit brother or something. (laughs) Flint is, Flint writes. He he writes, he writes himself, but he's got 
Weber's universe down well. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Except he's the polar op. I, I'll, well, I'm going to bring this up in uh, a little bit later when we talk about the story. But in a lot of ways, he's a polar opposite, but a spirit brother of uh, David Weber. There you go. Well, you hinted about about this in an earlier podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't forget it when we came to this story. Aha. And this was this was satisfying for a lot of reasons to read what Eric wrote. Here. Yeah. So let's continue, sorry, Jim. Jim. No worries. Yeah. Meanwhile, Helen manages to tunnel her way out of the cell she is being held in. Thanks to the training of her martial arts teacher, Robert Ty, her escape is successful, and she, along with two other children, are rescued. Uh, I'll tell you what, the way she dispatched those uh, bad guys that attacked her, I, I that was a short but a very well-done, well-crafted uh, battle scene. Uh-huh. Okay, the documents are delivered to Manticore by Anton under the protection of Catherine Montaigne, who I really liked. I, I would really hope we get <laughs> to see more of her because... She is, uh, she's just like Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, I listeners, think, I know. <laughs> I, that's funny you said that, Jim, because I kept thinking, this is like, this is like somehow another Elizabeth. Yeah. Again, not, the they're polar the, opposite. Yes. Yeah, they're opposite, but, but the same. Maybe. Oh, I forgot. Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some, some background on this one. Um, this, this story appears to unfold at the same time as the government on Manticore is in flux due to the death of the prime minister. That was Alan Somerville. For those that don't remember, we saw the initial impact of his death when a coalition government forms an opposition to Queen Elizabeth, bringing an abrupt end to the war without assurance that Haven won't be a resurgent threat in the future. And I talked too much about that when we talked about it, but I said it to me, this felt like the end of world war one, not the end of world war two because of the way that the conflict ended. Um, key political players are mentioned here after also being mentioned very late in ashes of victory. And those are in my mind, primarily Baron Highridge, Countess new Kiev and Elaine de Croix. We saw, we just saw their names at the end of the novel that we read. Mm-hmm. And now, and we're getting, and now we're getting this. So more of this, I, I have to believe whatever we get here, there's more, there has to be more coming. Yeah. I, I don't remember off the top of my head if it was after Somerville's death or immediately before, but it was absolutely in that kind of time frame because that's yeah. when Parnell uh, made his way back to uh, earth. Right. Yeah. Cause there were, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't bet my life on, on the order of events, but at the around all the all of that was when High Ridge begins to form this uh, this coalition uh-huh. deliberately to to oppose some of the policies of Elizabeth or certainly war war related policies. Also interesting that as I recall that it was the same kind of thing, but ending violently that resulted in her father's death. Uh-huh. Right there that there was there was inappropriate. Um, disagreement among among you know parts of of others within the government that ultimately that that guy gets knocked off and uh, and maybe that's important to know. I'm saying this 
truly speculative. Maybe that's important to that background of Elizabeth is probably important given that they're setting up a very similar situation, but being done arguably properly, right? Um, yep. A legit coalition forms to oppose her, her policies rather than just bumping her off. We'll see what happens that there's gotta be more. Yep. Next book. Thank you, Eric Flint. So, okay, cool. Um, themes in here, uh, some of the dime stuff resurfaces, domestic politics and their influence on international relations or foreign policy. That's that's in your face in this story to some extent. We're looking at domestic policy problems, but it, it is directly tied to to how I'm going to call Manticore the co- a country, right? How the country is behaving relative to uh, out, people outside of it, other countries. Wartime strategy and ending a war. This is the stuff of academies and war colleges. Um, did the war ultimately accomplish the intended political goal? Because remember, the military doesn't just send itself off to war. In the context of a a government like Manticore, um, and even arguably under a government like what was Haven. So uh, we have... I'm not. I'm not being bumper sticker. Even I'm gonna say, you know, it's politicians that start the wars, and it is politicians that end the wars. Mm-hmm. The ending may not actually achieve what the goal was, though, and that was my concern last time when we talked about the last book. You know what um, surprised me? As long as we're on this uh, politic, the, the theme of uh, political actions and movements, I'm surprised you didn't uh, bring up the internal resistance to Saint Just at this time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know why I didn't. It, it, it's, it's a, it is a thing, but you just brought it up. So that's, mm-hmm. good. so we've got the D and the I and dime with the pol- domestic politics and how it relates to international relations. We've got the D and the M in play with the wartime strategy and how you end a war um, related. You know, I kind of hinted at him said ending wars are harder than starting them. Pretty easy to start a war. Uh, wrapping one up well is, is, is hard. Yep. And I've mentioned that before as well, but it, that kind of surfaces here too. Um, racial superior racial superiority is a, is a big thing in this story. And, and the scrags phrases, even like super races and right. The scrags fascism is outright mentioned in the story. So there's no, where we have talked about things that hint at or allude to, Sometimes the Soviet Union in in the real world, or Nazi Germany in the real world, it, there was a single blunt reference to fascism, and it pointed back at Earth history. So there you have that. But they're calling what all this appeared to be. They're calling it what it is, and it was in the context of of those who think that that ra- some races are perhaps superior to others. And then a, a companion or a related issue is slavery. And here we have these genetically engineered, um, genetically created people specifically used as slaves for combat or slaves for recreation and, and specifically called out with it. The recreation bucket would be prostitution. And not alone, but that was heavily emphasized in the story as well. Mm-hmm. These uh, sex slaves. And that creates the tension in the story because the the info that Zawicki and Cat. Uh, um, Kasha, yes, Victor Kasha, run, run back with 
you know, he when they go back to Manicor with this in, this secret information. Oh, Kathy, you meant I, I, Kathy? Yeah, Cat, Kathy, um, Countess, right? Whatever. Montaigne, Countess, Catherine Montaigne. Yeah. Sorry, I was drawing a huge blank on her last name. Um, you know, that's that's really what what's at issue here is this slavery thing, but that has ties because of who's doing it all to the racial superiority, this the scrags, the you know, right back mm-hmm. to Mesa and Manpower Inc. And uh, and I'm sort of betraying, even though it's not a spoiler, who who was really behind the kidnapping and all of that. It was not the peeps, which was the initial thought. Not that they were not they had some culpability in it, but but this was really something a little more sinister than than that. Um so yeah there you and go. actually JP one thing to one thing I have to note we've as far as your themes, we actually seem to have found something that the Manticorans and the Havenites might actually agree on too. Yeah, that that came that came out pretty clear in uh, this story as well. Um, yeah, I, that was and that was neat to see. I, I've got comments on the themes, but I need to save them for the discussion. So okay, absolutely, don't, do don't uh, be afraid to hop in <laughs> and. Uh, All right. That I'm going to go ahead and pass this on to Jim for his impressions. Okay, this uh, this is a very complex story setting up a future book. I take it a lot of stuff in there I wasn't familiar with. Uh, there were times I had a little difficulty following who was who and what faction was in what business. Uh, but as usual, everything turned out to be against the Manticorans, right? I mean, what else? Uh, I was impressed with uh, a number of the characters, especially Helen and her abilities to focus on the, a task at hand and to defend herself efficiently at the age of 14. Uh, we've had run-ins with manpower before, and it would seem that it is a truly evil venture, and heads are going to roll when Elizabeth learns what Manticore and Piers are involved. Uh, This story did move along well, and the attack on Manpower Headquarters was described in graphic detail, but I didn't think it was at all gratuitous. Uh -uh. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the books that are co-authored by Eric Flint, and uh, I had no quotes, though. I suspect JP is probably going to make up for that. So we will go ahead and pass that on to him. Hey, I had no quotes either on this one. Yeah. All right. It's my turn to say this is my favorite story in this anthology. I'm not going to say it's my favorite story of all the short stories, but this one for me was my fave. There's so much here that touches so many other things we've read already in the Honorverse, especially the governmental shifts occurring at the end of Ashes of Victory. Makes me very happy we're reading these in the publication order. They were written in this order for a reason. I'm also looking forward to more from Eric Flint. Loved this story. Loved the way he writes. And I love the way he writes in the Honorverse. Yes. Just impressive. Uh, There was one possible goof in here. I just want to mention uh, Catherine Montaigne is referred to at the very end of the story. I think it was when they were walking in to present the, the data bomb, right? Here's the dirt we have. She's referred to as six inches taller than Anton Zilwicky. Mm-hmm. What happened to the metric system? <laughs> I so. believe you are not the first person to point that one out. There's a few uh, cases where the, in the series where they change. Yeah. And that's not even through. a criticism. It was kind of one of those, like, I feel cool that I caught it. 
Yep. Because I haven't noticed before this any use of anything other than metric type uh, terms for measurements, distances, and all those things. So it was uh, it was pretty pretty. It just it did it didn't ruin the story for me or anything. It was like what? It was literally a double. Just like what did that say? It did say six inches. How come it's not centimeters or meters or you know the standard uh, metric measurements? But that, if nothing else, it tells you. It, you guys know that I read the story because I saw that. Um, here's a here's a couple quotes or a couple few quotes. This is Anton Zilwicky talking about disinformation. The reason the admiral's theory is nonsense is because it's in the nature of things that a long run campaign of disinformation has to be reasonably stable. I'm going to break here. Remember, this guy is an intelligence officer. He is not a peep, mm-hmm. but he's familiar with with this kind of stuff. And so we get a we get a we get a we're getting very much into the D and the I of dime. Yeah, yes, we are. Which means things are going to get much more convoluted, and we're going to be taking some very different perspectives on things. So he says, a long run campaign of disinformation has to be reasonably stable. Disinformation campaigns take time, lots of time. You can't suddenly have your your turned agent start flooding his own intelligence service with information, in quotes, which seems odd and contrary to the other information. It has to be done in a careful and subtle manner, slowly adding one little bit of information at a time until over a period of months, or more often years, a warped perception of reality becomes accepted without anyone really knowing when and how it happened. And and because of his knowledge of this, um, which is really, I'm going to say, is how propaganda works, um, and we've seen some of this go on within the Haven government and the government toward the people, I want to point out that the primary target of these sorts of, dis- what he calls a disinformation campaign, is are sadly the subjects of the authoritarian government first, not outsiders. They're the second audience. But, uh, and the issue that brought this up was people were convinced that some certain folks were responsible for the kidnapping of his daughter. And he was insisting that that was not, that made no sense. And it it got into how disinformation was being used. And he goes, this isn't how pros do it basically. And so I don't think it's the peeps. I think it's somebody else. It's those kinds of arguments, but it was a great quote. Um, next one, uh, this is me being, um, I'm actually, I'm actually praising David Weber in this because he has written a character called Helen the daughter, not Helen the mother. And you mean Eric. Eric. Praising Eric Flint. Yeah, see, look at me. I'm praising Eric and David for and having Eric write this story. How was that? Was that smooth? Um, we got Helen, the daughter, the 14-year-old, daughter of two military officers, and she thinks about Clausewitz and how military ideas impact the world around her. Um Semi tongue in cheek, I'll say. So I'd say good military kid and good parenting with a with a wink. Mm-hmm. All right, here's the quote. Her captor's angry exasperation with her was just another sign of the carelessness which lay beneath the arrogant surface. For all the meticulous planning that had clearly gone into her abduction, her captors had apparently never thought of such minor obstacles. From Helen's careful study of military history, she firmly intended to follow her parents' footsteps and have a Navy career, she recognized the classic signs of opponents who were too full of themselves and never bothered to consider what the enemy might do, or to simply understand what the ancient Clausewitz 
had called the inevitable friction of war. Good girl, 14 years old. Quote, <laughs> and I, you know, I just thought of this, by the way, we've talked about um, Montaigne being sort of a, the flip side of the coin of Elizabeth. And uh, who was it out? There was another pairing just like that earlier we were just talking about. Um, dang it. There's another pair of characters like that. And I'm going to offer up that I wonder if, if young Helen here is actually a counterpart to, to honor, you know, the flip side of that coin. And I, and I, the only thing, and it's probably just this observation and it never goes any farther than that, but honor, it's been made very clear to us when she was a, a midship woman that she looked like she was 12 or 13 or 14 and had this, you know, child's voice. She sounds as young as she looks and all that. And yet it's a big brain mm-hmm. and a lot of capability and a lot of, you know, just a lot of everything there. And here we've got a 14, actual 14 year old girl who was raised by two arguably pretty smart parents. And she has a view of the world that is not a 14 year old view of the world. So it's kind of neat. Mm. Yep. The other side of the honor Harrington coin or something, maybe. Another quote, self-explanatory conversation, I think, between Anton Zawicki and Master Tai. Um, this is pretty blunt, by the way, and ties the story right into the r- real world. So here we go. He shrugged. So, like many other defeated groups in history, they transferred their allegiance to a new master and a new cause. Close enough to their old one to maintain ideological continuity, but with real influence in the modern universe, which the Masons certainly have. And... Although Manpower Inc. claims to be a pure and simple business, you don't have to be a genius to figure out the implicit political logic of their enterprise. What the old Terrans would have called fascism. If some people can be bred for slavery, after all, others can be bred for mastery. That's that's pretty scary, pretty blunt quote. Mm-hmm. Um, this perspective is amplified later when, I think it was Kennesaw, refers to Asians as subhuman. And it was just like, wow. So we're, we've gotten a lot of what I'll call blunt subtlety, if that's a thing, in these books so far. This is this is a flag being waved. Yep. It's very clear what comparisons are being drawn. Sort right of now. a contrast between the Scrags and the genetic slaves, even though both yeah. of them are genetically engineered right. people. It was interesting, too, that the, the, the Scrags were apparently often thought of as myth almost mythological like whatever these are or were it's it, certainly it's not we will learn more about the final war says. going forward so you'll, you'll get That's some answers good. to some of that and then uh next one anton zilwicky again exactly said anton however dictatorial and brutal they are the peeps are also ferocious egalitarians you can get executed in haven for arguing too hard in favor of individual merit promotions Again, he quoted from the classics, all animals are equal, even if some animals are more equal than others. There's no room in there for hereditary castes, especially slave castes, or for genetic self-reclaimed supermen. So sort of the counterpoint (laughs) to the previous quote. Mm -hmm. So not exactly what Anton was talking about, but I think there's a relationship here. So sort of. Because it appears the peeps are involved in this matter and mixed up with the Masons and Scruggs. This is what theory what i'm going to say theory versus reality looks like when the theory is at, is put into practice um, the reference there about animals is from george orwell's book animal farm it was right. published in 1945 and it was a satire perhaps more than a satire it was certainly a satire 
on um, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and how and Stalin Soviet Union really and Stalin's supposed betrayal of that cause. Ironically, the pigs in Animal Farm form a dictatorship that was even more oppressive than uh, and heartless than the prior government by their human masters. And I think we just saw that happening. I don't think it, I know it. We saw this happening with the formation of the uh, government of Haven after the quote-unquote coup, and then the subsequent action that happened and ended incredibly violently where St. Just basically put himself in a position to be a supreme you know, dictator. So um, Animal Farm comes up. By the way, the um, Bolsheviks were the Russian Social Democratic Party. Uh, I'm going to assume most people don't aren't super familiar with with all of that, even though we hear terms like Stalinism and Marxism and Leninism thrown around a lot, or some some of us may in certain contexts. <clears throat> the um, you know JP, uh-huh. got I, I got have you ever noticed? And I, this came up with uh, conversation with my wife. We're both K-drama fans, as I mentioned before, and right now we're watching one called Crash Landing on You, where a gal from South Korea has a paragliding accident and crash lands in North Korea. Huh. Um, isn't it odd how those most, those most oppressive regimes tend to title themselves focused on words like democratic, people... Yes. Republic, social. Remember, remember what I just said about disinformation. Yep, exactly. Anyway, so, continue with, with this. Yes. Um, so Stalin supposedly betrays the. I'm not gonna say supposedly. He he effectively betrayed the the cause of the original cause of the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, the pigs formed a dictatorship, which I mentioned, which looks a lot like what Saint Just did. Um, they. Did it in the name of socialism and egalitarianism. The Bolsheviks, this is the pigs in the story, right? Right. Um, The Bolsheviks were the Russian social, at one point called the Russian Social Democrat or Democratic Party, and considered themselves the majority. They may have... They may have been the majority. If if not, they were certainly representing what you could argue was the majority of Russians. They were led by Vladimir Lenin recognizable name until his death in 1924. In 1952, they changed their name to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Stalin was the Secretary General at the time. And mm-hmm. You could argue there's some pretty tight parallels to the fictional story we're reading. Uh, and effectively a dictator. He was the Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union from 22, 1922 to 1953. And the premier of the Soviet state, another title he took on, starting in 1941. As Lenin's successor, he seized power, and then in 1928 abandoned Lenin's quasi-capitalist economic policy in favor of a state-controlled industrialization Five-year plans. Which is, yeah, five-year plans, five all that was plans. there. That included murdering those who were held, who were his, his uh, real or perceived opponents, including people who had helped bring him to power, oddly. Often just in uh, case. Just in case. And specifically a dude uh, by the last name of Kirov, Sergei Kirov, who was arguably his closest colleague, but that also made him his greatest threat. And so Stalin has him executed. And we see all that captured to some extent in the um, 
companion short story Nightfall in this anthology. Some of that's gonna gonna show up. Um, but this is Haven. What I just described, which was the Soviet Union, in my opinion, is Haven. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying only Haven and Haven and the Soviet Union. That's the only uh, analogy or coupling, but it, it's strongly there to me. Um, all influenced by the economic philosophies <clears throat> of Karl Marx, by the way, who was around from 1818 to 1883 and was, and I'm making this point for a reason, and it goes back to what countries could be influencing the fiction. Karl Marx was a German, not a Russian. And mm-hmm. people forget that sometimes. Yep. He's the author of the Communist Manifesto in a book called Das Kapital. Don't forget the Nazis were national what? Socialists. Socialists. So don't let, they're important things, but don't let surface things like, well, I thought Russia fought against Nazi Germany in World War II. Yes, they did. They were socialists of a different stripe, but they were all, there's more in common, I would argue, with those two governments than there was that was different. Oh, yeah. No, no, no question at all about that. That, That's something a lot of people forget today. Yeah. Yeah, the underlying philosophies, whether they're economic or they're um, social, are incredibly common. They're shared philosophies. It's how you do it that apparently is, you know. This, what, what you're talking about is one of the reasons at the end of our last show, I made it a point to point out some of the differences in the uh, honor versus political party. And I think I also mentioned back yeah. then, uh, what, what, you know, when you're talking about left and right, keep in mind, especially for our listeners here in America, what we call left and right and what Europeans call far left and far right don't connect to each other. And in the honorverse, because you mentioned this, the mm-hmm. liberals and the conservatives aren't aren't directly, you can't- Or the liberals and couple, the progressives, you mean, don't you? Yeah, or yes, the progressives. You can't deliberately couple those tightly to American political parties. No. There are elements that are there. But there's a lot there that is not typical, and that's one of the things I love about how this universe is unfolding, is you can't just go, this This is absolutely the United States, this is the Soviet Union, this is Germany, this is England, this is, yeah, those elements are there, but not exactly. And it lets Weber tell a cool story with, obviously, with Eric here writing a, a short story, a long short story in the- This one's definitely a novella. Yeah. So the last one, and I'm going to shut up- um, Last quote. This is this is Catherine Montaigne, who's a minister of parliament, the one that Anton Zawicki um, connects with, talking about possible future plans with her advisor. And it goes like this. Now is the time. Now. He turned his head and stared out the window as if by sheer force of will, his eyes could see the star kingdom across all the light years of intervening space. Everything works in our favor. The best elements in the Navy will be roaring so will almost the whole of the House of Commons. Party affiliations be damned. The conservative lords will be huddling in their mansions like so many sheep when the wolves are out running with the moon. And for your precious liberals and progressives, Kathy finally found her voice. They're not my progressives, damn you. Sure as hell, they're not my liberals. I despise Decroy and New Kiev, and they return the sentiment, and you know that perfectly well. And this conversation then between um, Catherine and her advisor goes on. But there, there's something cooking with her that, like Jim mentioned, he likes her. I think this is a really cool character. 
and I can't wait to see what happens with her. Um, Catherine despises Elaine DeCroix and Countess New Kiev, which her name, as I recall, is Marissa Turner. Um, I wonder how this is going to play out relative to High Ridge or Lord uh, Janvier, right? Janvier? Janvier? Janvier. Yeah. So I use our three amigos. Just by habit. These are the, I'll be a horrible American. I don't, and say it wrong no matter (laughs) how I do it. But um, so these are the three, right? Mentioned them earlier. Mm-hmm. The, the, these are at the core of the opposition government to Elizabeth, and we've got this kind of banished MP in the form of Catherine Montaigne, who's who's pushing her way back in where she has a right to be. Um, clearly, not a fan of these three amigos that are at the core of the opposition for Elizabeth. But I get the impression she's not an Elizabeth fan either. So. It, Catherine just, is a liberal. Yeah. She is she is a tried and true member of the Liberal Party. So she is exactly the opposite of Elizabeth. So all that to say this, from my perspective, um, I have to assume this is a setup that could become the opposition to the opposition to Elizabeth. And I, I didn't say, oh, I, I said, I don't know that she likes Elizabeth, by the way, and you pointed out she's a liberal. Um so the opposition to the opposition doesn't mean that this that she's she's tight with Elizabeth. It means that there is a fracture inside of the it is a coalition government, but there there's a fracture there that is for one well, we know what the what the reason we're told is why this there's this information about slavery is going to get dumped onto everybody's table and pointed at and uh, it'll just it's going to be very cool, you know, very interesting. It's going to be an adventure to see where this goes. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope we see more of Catherine Montaigne, like I hope we see more of Bachfish. Those are two characters I, I really, I don't know if we're going to get more Bachfish or not, but I gotta believe we're going to get more of uh, Montaigne. And that's enough. That was way too much for me. So over to you, Raoul. Okay, folks. First of all, a few, a few things, a few housekeeping tasks here. JP does not read the email comments. So feel free to feel free to send any feedback through that channel that channel with absolute no concern about spoilers because there's nothing in the stories that you're gonna spoil me on. And likewise, he doesn't see the Facebook, but Jim does see the Facebook, so be a little cautious there. And if I'm too much of a second Marie the explainer, you can no, you can I say actually, that, and, and Ralph can tell me. Actually, a lot of our listeners are going to be just laughing up their sleeves over the comments that you've made. And in fact, while I don't have any quotes, all of your quotes are going to play directly into the things that I need to point out. And I did not read your quotes in advance. I just noticed that you had a lot of them, uh, which is one of the reasons I didn't make quotes, because I know you and I had a feeling they'd be rather relevant. Yeah, I struggled with the number that I had. I I wanted now, to cut some of those out, but I didn't want to cut those out. I, I'm kind of glad that you didn't, uh, even though it's going to make things long. And the main reason here is this story, no doubt, this story is the single most important short story, novella, whichever you want to call it, in the entire set of anthologies. And it's that for a whole lot of reasons. You could literally make a podcast out of just this story alone 
And we sort of did. And we sort of did. Um, and I will go even further. This story is absolutely essential reading. If you're going to make any sense of the second half of the Honorverse stories, beginning in the very next novel, War of Honor. Uh, if you have not read, well, let me rephrase that. If you don't read any other of the short stories, I cannot urge our listeners enough that you have to read this one. In fact, War of Honor isn't going to make sense without it. That said, as to the story itself, rather than a military story, this is more of an espionage spy story, you know, with the classic plot of father grows rogue to rescue his daughter kind of story. Um, but very, very well written. We have a whole stable of new characters brought in. And unlike many of the other shorts by non-Weber authors, uh, these are very brilliantly written. Now, okay, there, there are some, ah, I guess, silliness at times. Jenny, Jeremy X. But frankly, in my opinion, it doesn't take away anything from the characters. And in some ways, it just makes them a little more unique. Uh, I can understand how some people might be at times put off by by them. Um, but frankly, I liked them. I really liked them. Jenny, Jeremy, Kathy, very much. And I'm going to talk a little more about them coming. This story also takes place on Earth. I think this is might be the first time we've uh, been to Earth. In particular, it's in uh, Chicago, uh, more specifically Old Chicago, which is the capital of the Solarian League. It's our first look into the core worlds, Earth specifically, though, okay, it's a bit one-sided in its perspective, I think, and that, I also believe, is intentional, by the way. And like any spy story, the plot, like you know, you said, Jim, the plot gets rather complex, lots of twists, lots of surprises. The outcome's obvious. Anton is going to rescue his daughter. But in the case itself, like so many other excellent stories, it's not about the ending, which you, which is predictable. It's the journey to get there. Now, some interesting notes about the author before I go in any further. For those who don't know, Eric Flint is a, or was, because he recently passed away, sadly, was a staunch, devout socialist. In fact, he is exactly, he's almost a polar opposite, we've used that phrase a couple of times now, of David Weber. In light of that, you might find yourself thinking that some parts of the description of Manticoran uh, society isn't quite accurate, uh, or that it's, that the aristocracy is just being overly disrespected with a very broad brush. I don't believe it's an accident here, because we're looking at things from the perspective of Anton and Ke who's a Highlander, you know, damn all arist uh, damn all the aristocracy, my loyalties to the queen, to the crown. Kathy, who's uh, a liberal, and Victor Kasha, who is a, uh, well, another socialist from uh, Haven, who's notice very, very uh, pure of, as far as a socialist. And another thing, and JP, you kind of pulled that out when you talked about uh, Kathy's comment uh, in your quotes. You might also notice that uh, Flint, while he's a socialist himself, and like I said, a very committed one, he has a very, very 
very low opinion of the modern-day pseudo-socialist and those, as well as those who embrace socialism just for power and personal gain. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to see a lot more of that uh, as we get into the Crown of Slaves books. In fact, without giving any spoilers, you're going to see a lot of interplay between David and Eric's worldviews because those are co-authored. And you can tell when Eric's writing and you can tell when David's writing. And it is an absolute delight to read those things, to read those books for, for that perspective. Because the you, fact that these guys did all this work together, yeah, there's something to be learned from that. I'll just leave it. At it's that. the way. It's the way the debates. It's the way the debate should go. And one of the thing, the collaboration is absolutely amazing. And one of the things that I really, really liked about it, and I'm more in line. I'm much more in line with Weber, uh, personally. It's it, it's the a. It's the debate of the ideas, but b they focus more on the things that they have in common, that they, they really focus hard into their common ground rather, into the, rather than being fixated on the areas where they disagree. And you, you, I know, JP, you, you're going to love them in particular, and I know Jim's going to like them as well. I don't want to go too much on the story. I, I really want to focus on what's important for the honorverse itself here. And the good news is for people who haven't read the future, the books coming up yet, I'm, I can do this without uh, getting into any spoilers. The characters, the whole Zilwicky family, Anton, Helen, Barry, Lars, they are Victor Kasha, Kathy, uh, Kathy Montaigne, Jeremy X. These are going to be all very important characters in all three of the uh, story arcs. Uh, That's good news. This short story is the foundation for the entire Crown of Slaves series. Uh, Helen is going to become a main character in the Saganami Island series. All of the characters are going to have important roles showing up in the main series. So your, your wishes about these characters is going to be granted, both of you. This story is also a crossover point for the series. Mesa, Manpower, the Genetic Slave Trade, the Solarian League... As we're going forward, I, I've been dropping hints about this, you know, before. Now is the point where things are going to start taking over, and these are going to become the major focus of the series. This is getting into the second half of what Weber originally planned. And last but not least, another reason why this story has to be read at this time and point. This story is absolutely critical for the next book, War of Honor, uh, because there are characters and events referenced in that book that will make no sense at all unless you've already read this story. And without giving any spoiler, just one example, you notice in this story that there is there, there is some hint of some connection between Kathy, Catherine Montaigne, and Honor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Trust me, without this story, you're going to be scratching your head wondering, where the heck did this come from? And... For the Crown of Slaves, the other it's important because we don't get these characters reintroduced or a retelling of the story in Crown of Slaves. It presumes that you know the story and that you're familiar with the characters and events in it. So, yeah, th th that's that's the reason why I say this particular short is so incredibly important for the books. But 
I, I guarantee you with the quotes that you picked out, JP, without having seen, because I wait till you guys, I avoid your notes, and I know you guys avoid my notes. I, I can almost uh, bet you, as he's listening, David Weber is clapping his hands in glee with the things that you two gentlemen have picked out out of the story. Awesome. Ratings, gentlemen. Ratings. Thumbs up. And another thumbs up. And obviously, that's going to be three thumbs up. Um, I, I I knew you guys. I, I've been looking forward to this sort in particular for a long time with you guys. That said, I know how long we're running. I want to move us on to Nightfall. So, Jim, if you can get us a synopsis. All right. Nightfall by David Weber. Admiral Esther McQueen carefully plans an overthrow of the Committee of Public Safety as she rightfully suspects Oscar St. Just of plotting to have her arrested and tried for treason. St. Just knows it is only a matter of time before McQueen makes her move. However, he is being held back by Rob Pierre, who is reluctant to have her killed because of her prowess as a commander during the war. St. Just orders his people to gather solid information on McQueen until he is authorized to take action. Okay? Yep, that was mm-hmm. a, that was an interesting exchange in the book. I really, I really liked that. Um, that you know, Saint. We actually, I believe, saw aspects of that conversation, at least you know, some elements of that conversation in the uh, in Ashes. Yeah. yeah, and it shows. It was cool to get more of it, like to get the full kind of the full. Yep. Th- this is a too. technique that you're going to see uh, Weber employ uh, more comment more often in the future. Yeah. A little bit of retelling with diff- slightly different perspectives that changes your original view of what happened. And it really shows how, what regard St. Just has for Rob Pierre, that he do- doesn't just go right. ahead and do what he thinks needs to be done. Okay. McQueen believes the committee is prepared to move against her with false information and launches her plan. There is fighting in the streets and in the committee headquarters. Pierre is killed, and Marines in armor search out the committee members. Wow. Mm-hmm. That was an intense uh, scene through there. Yeah. Yep. And McQueen believes they're they're going to come after her at this point, meaning it's going to happen. Um, not, not just speculative, but she has a source who contacts mm-hmm. her. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, so the information is... They've authorized the... But the information isn't quite correct and she basically triggers her right plan prematurely before she was quite ready all right saint just escapes being killed as he commands ss troops against the marines and learns that several people thought to be loyal to the committee are changing sides when the fighting dies down mcqueen broadcasts a speech exposing holding the committee responsible for everything uh, that is wrong with the government and appears to be gathering support for her takeover. Mm-hmm. That was quite a speech. <laughs> yeah. 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 A little, she, a little loose with the truth, but yeah. very much a political speech. Yes. Uh, she, she is uh, definitely a politician herself, whether she wants yep. to admit it or not. Okay. Uh, St. Just orders that his plan bank shot be initiated. A 50-kiloton nuclear device 
planted deep under the octagon is detonated, killing 1.3 million people, including the Queen and her supporters. Oh, boy. I mean, talk about, uh, talk about the final solution. I mean, for crying yeah. out loud. St. Just is not simply immoral. He's, he's far worse than immoral. He is completely yeah, amoral. Yeah, yeah. SS General Rachel Spear confirmed the detonation of the device, calling St. Just citizen chairman, recognizing him as the new leader of the People's Republic. Well, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you talking about McQueen's broadcast and how it was political? And she's, she's a, she is an admiral. She's working as what their secretary of the Navy or secretary of war. Secretary of war. Yeah. Um, so a, a political position, but she's a, she's a military officer. And all I could think of when that part of the story came up was, was, uh, the, the statement that was made early on in the, in the main storyline books where honor declared she hates politics. And as I recall, somebody says to her something like, uh, well, you know, someday as a senior officer, maybe it was when she was a head made captain or whatever, but they said, you, you have to know politics. You have to, Mm -hmm. you can't be an admiral or a captain and not understand how things work politically. And this is obviously, this is not honor. This is McQueen and, and the government of Haven, but here's that concept put into practice right here. Yep. McQueen was doing very well, but she was on the losing side. So I, I kind of jumped into what, what I thought about the story there, but I didn't want to forget to say that. So, um, yeah, background, I owe you that though. So we, we know that St. Just nuked the octagon from the novel, uh, Ashes of Victory. Mm-hmm. That set the stage to establish himself as a dictator. This gives us the backstory, including why McQueen started her attempted coup early. So that was neat. Um, but this is... If you read Ashes and you thought, "What? Well, how did all this unfold?" This is where you get it, right? Yeah, and I also um, understand that this was actually supposed to be a part of Ashes of Victory, but it um, it was truncated for Ashes of Victory because of the length of the the book it, that was already there. Mm-hmm. I was going to make a joke. Oh, so seven hundred and thirty whatever pages is. We can't really go longer than that. We'll make this a short story. Yeah. But I think the next novel that we get is over 800 pages. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was as much the actual length of the book, but the way it impacted the pay length from this context of pacing. Yeah. yeah. No, that, made, that makes sense. So I'll, I'll throw some themes on the table for you, and then we can really discuss this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, loyalty is a dominant theme in here and this story helps you ponder that what you're loyal to actually matters not just being loyal combat to include staging a coup which i'll call combat the enemy always gets a vote perhaps best viewed as an element of the fog and friction of war which is a clausewitzian concept and we've already heard about friction in this context from uh, young helen as i recall yep um the risks of and the risks to an authoritarian or dictatorial government or that kind of leadership. Um, we, there's nothing new here in that sense, but it's reinforced as we watch um, St. Just maneuver 
relative to the people who are helping him but may be threats and the people who are not helping him and are threats. And as the government falls down around him, how he reacts to that given how he is as a human. And Raul, you mentioned that Mm -hmm. this guy is just, he has no morals at all. And the last one theme, civil military relations and the submission of the military to civil authority. The point there being that submission, that kind of submission, which is what we enjoy in America and uh, the Brits in the UK, I think most modern Western democracies enjoy this, but that submission assumes certain things, how a government functions, how it, how it views the governed with a D on the end. You know, are they subjects in, in a bad sense or are they citizens? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, we're seeing that played out in, in some real detail here. What the impact then of that civil military relationship is. We've got a former admiral, now an appointed official, staging a coup to fix a problem that was a coup. (laughs) You know, we get, we're getting layers and layers of government that you could argue is not legitimate. And, and, and the fixes you could argue, depending upon your point of view are not legitimate either. It's it becomes an awful, just a horrible problem. And we're watching people that I'll say seem to have some really good intentions trying to make right a really, really bad thing. Yep. And we've got really bad people trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. Over to you, Jim, for a discussion beyond those themes or in addition to or on top of those themes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This is a look into what went on behind the scenes at the end of Ashes of Victory and is one of the most intense things I've read in this series. The writing was great, the action was palpable, and the tension was turned up on high. Uh, It didn't matter that I knew the outcome of how this story would end. I was still on the edge of my seat the entire time. I know I said Miss Midshipwoman Harrington was one of my favorite stories. Well, this one is another of my favorites so far. Neener, neener, neener. Yeah. I can't decide which one I like better, but they are both gems and fun stories to read. And I do have a quote, and I love this one. Uh, McQueen listens to reports on the progress of her coup attempt and issues directions to her commanders. McQueen turned towards the commander, Yazov, who had just entered the conference room, and despite the thick haze of tension hovering about her, she felt an undeniable urge to smile in satisfaction. One way or another, no one in this room would ever use that stupid, syncophatic, citizen crap again and it felt unspeakably satisfying to put on the persona of an admiral once more instead of wearing that ill-fitting, quasi-civilian mask of Secretary of War. And I had a note to that. I stood up and cheered when I read this passage because I'm a little tired of that phony baloney citizen crap myself. Okay? How yes, I wish but between... But it, it still happens today in the real world. Oh, I know. Um, how I wish... McQueen had not been vaporized. Maybe we can have her back as a force ghost. <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> It'd be good if we were the Star Trek uh, as the Star Wars this podcast. Is not but... the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> podcast. <laughs> this is the Honor Verse Today podcast. And with that, 
I'll turn it over to JP. Well, this is my second favorite story in this anthology. We know there's a somewhat satisfying ending to a horrible chain of events here, but uh, it, it just it was it would have been my first favorite if it wasn't nestled up against just some bigger, badder stories. Uh, these events in here seem to draw directly from, as, as I had mentioned earlier, Stalin's assumption of dictatorial powers in the Soviet Union. A little and, bit of the um, French Revolution uh, as well, I think, in some ways. Yeah, that I think that's totally, that is totally fair. Um, but I, I, I bring Stalin back up because I saw mm-hmm. hints of that in, uh, from the Highlands. Yep. So just interesting that, that to me, you know, it's the old what we all get what we get out of reading a story or these stories, stories like these, that there there was a theme and it's based on maybe, you know, things I've already studied or what I, the baggage I carry with me. But I, the, these four stories grouped together were, were this was pretty cool. Um, yep. I'll say with the exception of the, my fourth favorite one, which was the, the one about the tree cats. And I loved that story. I'm not a super tree cat fan, but that was a really great story. I feel sad that these three were its neighbors, <laughs> these other three stories. So, and I have no quotes. Okay. Just in picking up, I'm going to ask you in your political studies, if you've ever known, because this story paired next to from the Highlands makes me wonder. Has anyone done a comparison or an analysis on similarities and differences between the French Revolution and the uh, Bolshevik and uh, Bolshevik and Stalin's yeah. rise to power? Somebody, would, somebody must. Someone have, has right. to have. Hey, David, if you happen to be aware of something <laughs> like that, feel free to let us know. Help a friend. Yeah. Help a brother out. It, it, it would be a great. It would be a great study. Obviously. The, the French Revolution was before Marx, but the so, some of the philosophies that Marx drew on, I mean, they were in place even before the French uh, Revolution. I, you know, there, there's you, you can see some Rousseau, for example, kind of reflected in there. But anyway, another great Weber story. Yes, like you have both said, and you know, there's been comments for people who from people who haven't read the anthology. Wishing that McQueen's coup had been included in Ashes of Victory. And this story reads as if, oh, gee, the battle had been written, cut out of the novel on editorial yeah. needs of pacing, then cleaned up and republished as a, a short in an anthology. I wonder so if why. They long for the story, it's actually here. It just yep. wasn't in that novel. And you know what? I agree with the cut that things like that have to happen. It was definitely the right move for that novel but I am just as glad it was included here. I, I'm really happy to see that here. And like you, I don't have a quote. And part of the reason for that, and part of the reason I don't have additional, you know, deep discussion is so much of this was discussed. So much of the relevant concepts here was discussed in There's the last book in ashes. So mm-hmm. yes, I guess at that point then, unless anyone has anything else to add, we can go straight into our thumbs. Oh, I will. I will add Jim. that yes. when I read this story in the in the at the end of um, Ashes of Victory, I felt sick to my stomach. Yeah, I would have had the same feeling had I not known what was going to happen to Oscar Saint Just, uh-huh. and and that uh, Theisman was going to step up and take matters into his own hands. But um, 
I it, I didn't get that feeling that I that I got in the other book. So anyway, my rating: huge honking underline thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna throw a thumbs up on the uh, on the table with you. Yep, and obviously a third thumb up for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, you notice. I have mentioned stories being extremely important. In fact, this, the timing, the sequence of the stories themselves in this book, the, the putting it between the two novels that it was put between, there's no accidents involved in that here. No. Yeah. The, the, this was part of the pacing of the grand saga itself. I, I refuse to pick a favorite out of these four, or, I, or a least favorite out of these four. They're all because it's your this is your favorite anthology, right? This is my favorite <laughs> anthology, and for the reasons that I just described, too. And yeah. one thing that is very what? for sure, whereas in a lot of other series, when you get intervening short stories and things like that, you you have to wonder is this a cash grab? That is not the case here. I mean, as uh, you say, this all. is all vital information that. Mm-hmm. either explains what was in other books or prepares you to understand what's coming up in future books. I, I, I'm telling you, the, the planning that went into this entire universe has to be amazing. He had an 80,000-word writer's Bible before he started on Basilisk Station. I was going to say either impressive. that or he had sticky notes covering a gym floor. <laughs> <laughs> With, oh, there'd well, be enough sticky notes to wallpaper his house. Yeah. The the very beginning, what what did he think that this whole thing would be? Five to eight novels. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't. Well, mm-hmm. that brings us down to our overall ratings. And, uh, of course, I'm going with a five. Uh, I, there's nothing there that isn't uh, good. I'm I'm going with a five also. This may be the only anthology that I give a five to. I know it has been so far. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an it's a definite five. Yep. So overall, our rating comes out to a five. Okay. Mm-hmm. Over on Goodreads, it's uh, rated at four point zero three with four thousand nine hundred and twenty nine ratings, which is a darn good Goodreads rating. Oh yeah. That's a harsh crowd. And Amazon uh, shows a 4.6 with 621 rating. Uh-huh. So. All right. Moving along on our next very exciting episode, we're going to be looking at War of Honor by David Weber. And as I say, this one is a whopper coming in at 869 pages. So. But I promise it will not be as long of a show as this one. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> all right. Uh, shout-outs. We got a few shout-outs here. Uh, first of all, once again, Hank Davis and the TPE Network for a fun, yeah. informative podcast. Who, Thank you so much, Hank. Who hosts our always, show. Always to yeah, Hank. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Um, and then I have one from uh, Facebook okay, to uh, Rob Shaw Fuller. And I'm not... Um, Okay, this is uh, apparently having something to do... Well, I I don't know. I'll just read it. Great episode. Of the books you have read so far, I agree that Echoes of Honor is my favorite. 
But wait, just you wait until at all costs. <laughs> okay. Special thanks to I think J that's my second favorite. <laughs> all right. He goes on. Special thanks to JP for taking on the apprenticeship uh, to Murray the Explainer to provide us with all the historical context for capital ships, naval task tactics, and so forth. It might have been long, but it was good and informative stuff. And Amen to that. Thank you, Rob. There you go. Thank you. So now you are son of Murray the Explainer. <laughs> That's right. It's my tree cat and name. Raul, do we have any Son other? Of Murray. Do we have any other uh, shout-outs? Always as to uh, Rhonda and Steve Bradley for their comments on the Facebook side. Um, Baz and Conrad, hey, like I, I gave Conrad a shout-out. Thank you. He, he, this one was for you, Conrad. He he's been asking since for, for quite some time about it's like when, wondering what you guys were going to think when you hit Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington. <laughs> Great story. And I'm sure you fulfilled his expectations there. And I've got one last final shout out, uh, a very big one to David Weber, just for giving us this kind of material oh. here to read. Yeah. yeah. And also for his willingness and openness to be able to comment. He hasn't, uh, he hasn't come up on the net and flamed us. So thank you for your patience, Mr. Weber. Mm -hmm. uh, your patience with our handling of your awesome material that, that you've given us to read. Yep. So that just leaves one thing, one item of business left to take care of. Only one? Oh. No boom today? <laughs> Wrong <laughs> show. Okay. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> this is Honor Harrington. There's always boom today. Yes. However, uh, so our last order of business is to say good night. Go ahead, Raul. I'm so glad we had this time together. <laughs> no singing on the podcast. Pretty, pretty sure there, there's a rule about what you just yep. did. <laughs> you just broke the rule. You're eliminated. Bing, you're done. Okay. <laughs> Say good night, JP. Good night, JP. So long, everybody. Good night, everyone. For listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha.
Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. War Maiden's crew has been killed. Ooh, that's wrong. Young Harrington, as a matter of fact, Shelton said, I came across her at Axial 1. I came across her in Axial 1 this afternoon, tearing up a strip. Jeez, here we go again. Young Harrington, as a matter of fact, Shelton said, I came her across. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, really. Nimitz perked up on the shoulder. Nimitz perked up on her shoulder as she spotted the cheese stuffed stuff. <laughs> Marezito and goatsito. Oh my god! <laughs> All right. Yeah, we just better not laugh, JP. But for the grace of God. Yeah, I know. My turn's coming. As a matter of fact, Mister Santino. I asked Senior Chief Shelton to dare, sorry, uh, I asked Senior Chief, okay, Jim, this is your fault. (laughs) 